It's March 14th, 2021, and I'm talking with Mac McGregor about the week's top stories in the world of defense acquisition. First one we got here is show don't tell Navy changes strategy to sell unmanned systems to skeptical Congress. So the background here is that the Navy's asking for more funding to do new tech. Lawmakers basically are skeptical, don't give them as much money, then the Navy just asks for more money the next year, and it gets into a do loop. And so it wasn't really too much that was new here. I think we already talked about the Navy pivoting its uh, strategy for unmanned systems towards this kind of building block away from a p- program of record, at least in the fit up for, for the foreseeable future. Um, but there was an interesting comment here from Representative Whitman where he says, when the service sets requirements for a large unmanned surface vessel that is able to remain underway for 60 days without humor, human intervention, I am prone to be skeptical of their ability to meet that aim today. So it seems like Congress is also, you know, their skepticism lends, lends them towards this kind of incremental building block approach more than kind of going gung-ho on, on scaling something. Yeah, I mean, it, cl- it seems clearly that the uh, reliability from some of the other things we read before, uh, last or a couple weeks ago, reliability was a big issue. And I, and I think they realize they have some work to do there. Um, you know, I still think if you wait, if you kind of do, do everything, you know, perfect, it's, it's just going to delay like the long-term fielding. So I, I hope that they can soon get permission to at least go and start, you know, building up the production capacity, uh, you know, working on some of these, you know, working on some of the concepts, at least getting some production out there so they can, uh, start to try out how this will integrate with the, the blue fleet and, um, have enough, you know, actually enough ships to, to really kind of play that out. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it makes sense to maybe uh, focus on reliability and some other aspects of this, but the idea, one of the other comments here from the uh, spokesman for the association for uncrewed vehicle systems was that, you know, they have to, you know, do all this, you know, but on land, right? Like it's, it's such a new thing that Congress is going to want them to show, everything, you know, using land-based testing. And I think there's only so much you can do there when we're talking about unmanned systems, unmanned water systems. Uh, like, I, I don't I don't know what you would show on land that would build that confidence. So, yeah, I hope they can, uh, hope they can move past this and actually get going on this. Yeah, that was an interesting, I guess it was in the FY20 NDAA, right? That requirement for land-based testing. I was also wondering, and then they had like, you had to do it for subsystems and there was this new kind of technical director person or CTO that would have to sign off on it before you could kind of move forward with anything. I was wondering, you know, did, was the frigate, did they, is that heritage enough that it got to sidestep that? Or I wonder how that got to kind of move along without all the land-based testing stuff. Well, I mean, I think some of the major, if I don't, if I'm, if I recall from some of the reading, I think some of the subsystems on a lot of these ships have been, are like common, right? Like the, you know, um, some of the radar systems, some of the, you know, communication systems and things. So that, that was, that was what I was kind of getting at is like, is every, before every single ship, new ship is built, like, yeah, like the frigate or the destroyer, did every single one of those components have to be tested on land? Um, you know, it's a, yeah. So I don't understand. I don't understand like what, what it is about the unmanned systems. Cause you would think, many cases it would be using a lot of the same systems. It would just need slightly higher reliability rates uh, for some things because they won't have the man, you know, the maintenance, uh, the maintenance uh, form factor will be different. 
but um, you won't have, yeah, you won't have access to spare parts and things like that. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is interesting. I'm not sure. Yeah. The, uh, the requirements also kind of a weird one too, because it's like, well, what if you get to 50 days, you know, without human intervention? Well, that's not good enough. So we're not ready to move into the program. <laughs> right. So why yeah. not you know, remember this, uh, capability over time curve concept? It's like, why not just like get it out there and like see the progress rate, you know, that you can kind of drive towards some of these things rather than, you know, just have to work it out in total before starting. Yeah, I don't know yet. Do you have to have it? Uh, I mean, you, you probably know know this, but with the reliability testing, like to actually get the hours, you have to actually like run the thing like a ridiculous amount of time. Like it can take like a year sometimes just to get like all the reliability hours to, to demonstrate, you know, this thing can actually go, you know, X amount of time. And you have to do it, you know, there's all these like, you know, all these different uh, kind of algorithms that have to play together to, to show that. And yeah, like to have to do that without ever building anything that can be fielded just seems kind of unnecessary because, yeah, okay, let's show that it's reasonably reliable to actually go out and do, you know, greater scale and then expect it to be closer to the 60 days before you go into like full rate production or something like something like that would seem to make more sense. But Oh, yeah, that kind of delaying those requirements to the production decisions kind of seems to make a lot more sense, um, but you could still probably buy a dozen or something like that, right? For test articles and stuff. Right. Next one, we got lawmakers recommend 800 million budget increase for defense labs and test infrastructure. And that's down from 1.1 billion recommended by the Senate appropriators earlier. And Heidi Shu had pegged the total shortfall at closer to 5 billion. But what we got here is 375 million to DOD ranges, uh, including Nevada tests and training range, Point Magoo, China Lake and Alaska Range Complex, and then 422 million, kind of to unspecified defense-wide and Navy R&D projects somewhere around hypersonics, directed energy, electromagnetic spectrum, so 5G and stuff like that as well, uh, targeting. So you know, probably long overdue, right? You know, we always love to fund platforms, 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 and the enabling tech, the labs, the, the infrastructure you know, just kind of get short shrift until there's a crisis on hand and then you can't, you can't bear it any longer. Yeah. I observed this in the air force, uh, for a really long time. It it was pretty interesting because the the chief of staff knew that the combat training ranges were, were not where they needed to be. And, you know, basically the, the pilots were being trained on, you know, or fighting against, right. Because they, they kind of go through some of this training where they, uh, have to be able to handle different enemy systems. So there's like, you know, Russian and whatever, Chinese, Iranian, different radar systems that they have to kind of be trained against. But they were getting so old and decrepit and hard to maintain that it was almost like the new capabilities like F-35 could just fly right through them, right? I mean, they had enough capabilities that it wasn't an issue. And so they're like, we need to get this up to like a fifth gen test range, but it just never seemed to get the resourcing. Like, just always fell be below the cut line. Like sometimes they would get, you know, some scraps, but it never got like the real, the real thing. So yeah, it's good to see that's finally getting some attention. I do think some of it, I mean, one of the things that the air force moved to was live virtual construct training so that you could do more and more things virtually. Um, and you could also like have multiple, multiple aircraft, uh, together virtually. You could use some of, you know, classified capabilities and things like that, that you might not be able to do out in the open. So I do think the 
for testing or for, for testing, it's probably, you know, this is, this stuff is great for training. I think more of those kind of things are probably going to go into the virtual world um, as we get better at that. But yeah, good to see that at least hypersonics is getting some love. It's clear that the uh, industry folks told the sec def that, you know, that's what's keeping them from being able to accelerate. So it looks like they're actually getting after that. I just heard recently from, I think it was the AFRL uh, former chief scientist that the Air Force and the DOD at large have been like closing wind tunnels at the rate that China was creating them, <laughs> you know, over time. Was, really? I'm sure China's, you know, got a lot more. I think there's just two, you know, major ones, right? One from NASA and one at Arnold that are kind of like the main wind tunnels for, you know, hypersonic research. And it's just like, it's impossible to schedule time there because they have such high demand. The next one we got is Boris Johnson launches new UK shipbuilding strategy with billions in funding. And that includes $4 billion for uh, shipyard infrastructure and green ship design. And it will also deliver a pipeline. It looks like the, the Brits also have a 30-year shipbuilding plan. Woo-wee. But they're going to have a pipeline of more than 150 new naval and civil vessels. Um, in this 30-year plan and it looks like a big boost to the shipyards in the uk from 60 million which sounds rather small to more than 400 million per annum uh, which is a pretty big increase and uh, the shipbuilding industry supports 42,000 jobs and 2.8 billion to the economy in 2020 so there you go it looks like you know u.s isn't the only one <laughs> you know pushing or trying to push more resources towards shipbuilding but we'll see about capacity and all that kind of stuff. Look, they they may also be kind of far behind on infrastructure as well. Yeah, I'm not sure, uh, but it is good to see them the focus there because most people probably don't realize it. But if you uh, look at how the Navy, um, the U.S. Navy plans to kind of operate in allied allied engagement, the U.K. Navy, Royal Navy is is actually a big part of that, along with the French Navy. So so they actually are a Pacific player. Um, and so we, we definitely want them to, you know, to kind of have that capacity so they can support, um, uh, you know, different operations and then to pay theater. So it's, it's good to see that the one, the one funny thing I did pick up out of this that, uh, kind of took, caught my eye was the fact that they're going to be building lighthouse vessels. Um, I'm a little bit of a lighthouse junkie and like there, some of the original lighthouses were actually on ships. So I was kind of like, are they going back to like building lighthouse ships? So I still have to look that up exactly what that is, but lighthouse vessels is apparently something they're building again. So. <laughs> I have no idea what that's about. That's interesting. <laughs> uh, all right. So let's move on to hypersonics and hypersonic aircraft startup. Hermius raises a hundred million to finish prototype and build out fleet from CNBC. And so this, uh, I, I think it was a series B fundraising round was led by Sam Altman, who I believe is of Y Combinator and Peter Thiel's Founders Fund, and also Incutel, which are new new investors. Uh, so it looks like the hundred million here that's kind of on the back of that sixty million that they received from the Air Force and Afwork Stratfi, and um, it will be going to complete the the quarter horse jet, which is kind of their uh, I believe it's like a third size model of, of like what will eventually be the full dark horse flight you know like ultimate development they'll, that they'll be doing but you know pretty excited for this they're kind of on track to fly in 2023 for the quarter horse 
and they've already done a bunch of testing and stuff like that. So they can keep this timeline. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, definitely. Um, listening to the podcast, you know, that, that you did with these folks sounded like they really, you know, really knew their stuff. They were kind of, you know, they had the right focus on the engineering side. Uh, they weren't, they weren't kind of jumping ahead too fast. They were trying to make sure they had, you know, kind of all the basics down, getting the engine, uh, you know, where they, where they wanted it before trying to, you know, do prematurely try to do some flight. So yeah, they really seem to have their act together. It's probably a good sign that all these, you know, VCs are willing to jump in. I did think it was interesting that, um, they mentioned in that same article, this company, Arion, which had been building this uh, called AS2, AS2 jet. And they had, you know, they were going to be flying not in 23, but in 24. Uh, they were doing all this work, but they, they actually said they got to the point where they couldn't actually close on all the large, you know, capital requirements to actually begin production. So I thought that was kind of interesting is does, uh, does Hermes have a different plan? It's like, is this where like the VCs start to fall apart with hard with major hardware systems? Is they're willing to invest in the R and D, but when it comes to like the production, it's like maybe too big of a bill. So kind of curious to see what the yeah I don't know if when you if we get to talk to them again, but kind of curious to see how they've had that conversation. And you know, 100 million is not going to build them a production a hypersonic production plant. So do they feel confident that they'll get that follow on funding or like Arion, will they just, you know, after doing all this work, I mean, Arion had partnerships with Boeing, General Electric, Berkshire Hathaway, and then now they just went out of business. Like they had a Florida governor, you know, uh, committed to build a manufacturing facility. And um, yeah, and then they just, you know, they closed, closed shop. So I don't know. thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point to see what will happen down the line. But you know, going from Ariamp, which was a supersonic, right, to Hermes, which is Mach 5 or so, um, like, that's a huge capability increase. And the yeah. part, this is, the, the real question for me is, like, it feels like the Department of Defense will probably look at them as something like, here's some free stuff that we get to kind of have options on and see if we want later down the line, you know, but will they actually step in, you know, and say, like, this is a really important capability? Because it will get, like, there's all sorts of problems, right? Like, <laughs> Apparently, like the SR-71 extended, like, was, like, a couple feet longer when it was actually in flight and stuff like that. There's all sorts of stresses. Yeah. Just, like, the manufacturing of that kind of stuff must be crazy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All the different materials. It's, you're probably going to have to, because we, we've been, we're we starting to produce some hypersonic missiles. But, I mean, to build something that has to have people in it, uh, you're probably going to have to create all sorts of new processes. I mean, the risk is going to be manufacturing risk I, I would imagine would be quite high so yeah it is it is interesting to see just like what that would look like um Arion was was planning to go from first flight in 24 to actually like beginning production in 26 so um so i'd be kind of curious to see where where hermes is thinking there yeah but hermes you know like hermes is planning to get to first flight sooner but i think was uh Arion, they had a production ready model that's what they were trying to fly in 24 i think they still had some 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 uh, uh design and development to do but they, they weren't they weren't quite there but they were uh, they were looking ahead and so they had done some of the you know they actually had like 11.2 billion dollars in sales like they had a backlog and they had you know agreement with the florida governor to use the orlando international airport for manufacturing so they had a lot of things in place that's why it makes me really kind of 
maybe maybe you're right. Maybe it was just the fact that they weren't groundbreaking enough, and maybe Hermes is so groundbreaking and so revolutionary that 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 will attract the capital. Whereas, yeah, only getting that marginal, even though you know flying at supersonic would be pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, maybe that wasn't enough to kind of you know jump jump the you know jump the financial gap. But um, definitely does something it, to watch. Does it jump the the like, does it allow for the DOD to come in and be that, you know, bridge, right? Because, like, was the supersonic a big enough deal for them to actually come in? Maybe they get some executive transport or something, build, you know, like, um, an Air Force One out of it. But, like, if you have a Mach 5 thing, the ISR on that is pretty pretty clear, right? But I guess you also have satellites, so, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, honestly, what the military... I mean, for cargo, for transport, I could definitely see it, but I'm not sure. Looking at the Dark Horse, it is quite a bit bigger than the Quarter Horse, and I think they do have cargo, but, like, I'm not sure how much exactly. I didn't see weights or anything. So, like, would it be a C-130 kind of thing where you could fly hypersonically and deliver? Because cargo would be pretty – I think that would have a real military application that would probably be attractive. Um, But That's why we got the, the rocket thing, right? Uh, rocket uh, resupply. Uh, <laughs> You're down on the rocket resupply. Uh, I I not. I'd love to see it, but I mean, I I just think of it as like, um, uh, well, for one, you're gonna have to like have these little spaceports all over. I just think it's gonna be like a target, personally. Uh, big old rocket slowly coming down. I mean, if you've ever seen the SpaceX landing, I mean, it has to come down nice and controlled. To me, it's just like, I don't know. If you're the enemy and you see a bunch of these like rocket things come down, sort of like, yeah, take those things out, you know. But I don't know. So I think the Air Force is still pursuing that, and so maybe that is the answer. But I think a, hyper, a hypersonic uh, cargo plane would be pretty attractive, too, if the cost point was there. The cost point would have to be there. Well, the next one we got here is kind of related. Pentagon tech officer, Russian invasion shows importance of contested logistics, which should be something that's pretty obvious, right? And it seems to <laughs> also be something that maybe get short shrift in the Department of Defense, but the Pentagon will be in the planning stages of a second sprint for new joint experimentation in 2024. And they, she, I guess this is Heidi Shu. She wants to focus on contested logistics as part of that. And so she says, in order to start for the FY24 experiment, you really need to start now, right? So she, you know, this gets back to our PBBE reform and other types of, uh, you know, budget flexibility discussions, but she wants a transition pot of money to make it easier for small businesses to participate um, in Raider and help up ramp up capabilities to production quicker. So, you know, I guess we'll, we'll see what that means. Uh, but like these contested logistics, where's the program office for that? There is like a rapid sustainability office, right? In the air force and certain things like that. But uh, yeah, that wouldn't be the office though. They're, they're focused more on like the, uh, um, yeah, like how to sustain, basically rapid sustain it. But I, there is the Agile Combat Support Office in, uh, in Georgia. Um, I forget the, it's not Moody, it's the other base. But anyway, yeah. They, so there is there are there are folks that are that are probably there are program offices that could probably support that. Uh, it, it, the interesting thing will be is how um, you know the services right now are essentially submitting projects for Raider. So will this be? like the the small businesses just submit direct to OSD and the services are maybe part of the selection process or do the services get the proposals from 
the contractors and then they submit them or yeah. So it'd be interesting to see how that plays out, but no, definitely contested logistics. I think Ukraine has been pretty good about showing just, uh, just how important that is. So, yeah. Yeah. But it feels like, you know, the Raider is, is just like too little too too late kind of thing. Well, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like it, it seems like this needs to be like a mass, like not just these kind of one off kind of, low millions kinds of projects right like it needs to be something that there's real like dedicated prolonged you know effort put to it absolutely and 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 actually it goes to the point that i think you've been making for a while about it's not just about being able to get i mean contested logistics is about being able to get uh the the right things into into where they need to be into the warfighter but you also need those things in order to be able to deliver them so i think the mobilization piece is just as critical to this because if we are in a conflict, you're going to start burning through missiles and uh, bombs and, you know, potentially aircraft, uh, depending on the fight. So you need to have the ability to, uh, to mobilize and actually start, you know, ramping up production quickly. And, you know, that way you have those resources that you can, you can bring into theater. So food is one thing, but you need to think about all the other stuff. Yeah. The, uh, the leakages and stuff of the oil in uh, Hawaii that they had to shut down and move, uh, move elsewhere. You know, that just like, these things just are like, you know, (laughs) they show you, like, if you get into a real fight, like those things are going down super fast, right? Like anything above ground, especially of those oil depots are just going to be targeted. And it's like, how do you, you know, kind of keep going? Like the more you put thought up front to that, you know, the better you're going to be rather than, would you rather, I guess one of the questions is, would you rather have, you know, more force structure that you can't really maintain, uh, but you could surge up to, or would you rather have a fighting force that, you know, is more distributed, so it's inefficient in a way, but it can, like, is more resilient as well? That's kind of like a weird trade-off you have to make. Yeah, I mean, I think for, we haven't really said it in the air domain, because uh, I don't think we're there, but, like, you know, in the space domain, resilience is recognized as being absolutely critical because we need to have access to space. And so I think we need to get to a point where we are willing to sacrifice, like we've talked about many times, willing to sacrifice the, the, the exotic platforms, which, you know, just by the fact that you have something that's multi-role, you know, multi-capable can do a million things. Uh, you know, it's like whenever you build those kind of platforms, you automatically bump up the price tag and you make make getting capacity really hard. So if we can find a way to build, find that balance between, you know, a simpler platform, cheaper, then we can build the capacity. And then I think you get some resilience from that because yeah, you can take some casualties, you can take a few hits, but you can respond and keep, you know, keep the pressure on the enemy versus if they find a way to exploit the F-35 and start knocking out the skies, like, what do you fall back on? Right. You got your, 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 your nothing. Or if they learn how to take out, you know, some of the, some of the really exotic Navy ships, it's like, well, if you don't have those unmanned ships that there's like hundreds of, and you only have 20, 20 of the big ships, then you're sort of like, you're out of, you know, you're out of it. So I, I personally go for the resilience piece. I hope we can start working on, on that. Yeah. Well, some of those big ships are in a way resilient, right? Cause there's so many destroyers and whatever, surrounding them <laughs> that they're very <laughs> difficult to kill but not impossible so it's like you know it's hard to kill but when you kill one it's just devastating right so um well i mean it depends on the fight i think it's in like 
we're fighting Iran or fighting out in the open ocean, but when you're fighting on an enemy's border that is really, really long and they have nothing, you know, nothing to do all day but shoot missiles at you and longer and longer range missiles, yeah, I think you start to start to get scared. <laughs> well, make make industrial mobilization cool again, right? That's where we got to yeah. get to. Exactly. Um, next frontier after PPBE reform. So <laughs> next one we got to, this one sounds pretty obvious, but from Mackenzie Eglin, the, Peng- the Pentagon must pay for competition. And <laughs> so this is kind of the tra- another trade-off that people usually aren't willing to make, right? You always, it's cheaper to have one supply chain, one production line, you know, joint everything, and you can kind of amass the economies of scale. And that actually leads to the the idea of like these massive carrier groups, right? That become pretty brittle. Um, the one multi-role mission thing to do them all. But Mackenzie Eglin here is kind of talking in, she ge- she gives the example of the F-35 where they were looking for a second source for an engine or a second engine for the program in the 2010s and decide not to do it. Um, and for fast forward a decade later and the engine troubles are creating a lot of uh, stand down time and other issues in terms of um, in terms of maintenance. And so she's basically implying, hey, if we got a second engine being developed and competitive throughout that with Pratt, Pratt Whitney's uh, F-135, you know, we would have actually been saving money on the back end. Do you, do you agree with that? What, what was your take? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with her points. I think her points are dead on in terms of you know that you can't. Um, well, it was sort of the it was sort of the same situation with uh, the B twenty one, right? Northrop basically said, if we don't get this project, we will never build another bomber again. Like we will stand down that capability. So I think I think the I think she's right that the Pentagon does have to pay for competition in certain areas. Um, you know, and I think we need to, for one, we need to make sure that we always keep two engine manufacturers at a minimum, it'd be great to have more, but they're complicated and probably won't happen. But, you know, at least, at least to keep two viable, viable competitors for something I think is important. I think the F-35 example, I probably could have found a better one. Um, You know, we did look at that. It would have probably caused, you know, much more delays on the program. It would have been extremely complicated. The F-135 was, was really hard enough uh, and it was hard to make it affordable too. We spent, years and years trying to get it affordable. So to do that concurrently with a GE engine would have been, would have been a real nightmare, but I think we're at the point now and actually the air force is planning to integrate the new, um, ATP engine, which is GE's engine supposed to be a lot more efficient, you know, give longer range extended from 1300 miles to 1800 miles. So, you know, so they're supposed to integrate that, I think by 2027, I think that's a good idea to have that. I think that will be a expensive endeavor. So, um, so we'll just have to make sure. I think Secretary Kendall's been a little skeptical of it, but I think that will happen because I think they will need um, new engines. But one of the reasons why the engines are failing faster is because they're literally drawing double the power that they were expecting. So there, are, there are some really good reasons why things are why things are not as not going to plan. But, um, but yeah, would the would the alternative engine have been able to just like cut out the F-35B requirement and would that have saved it anything? Oh yeah. Well, the, F- the, the B model is the most complicated. Um, honestly, that was, that was a lot of the reason why the program was delayed is that was a pretty, uh, that was a really revolutionary kind of a technology. 
but I'm, yeah, it would have saved a little bit, but it would in, in, incorporating that into the even the A and C models, uh, the the all the all the work that was done to to make it work right, to you know have it in the right envelope, all the testing that it had to go through. I mean, thousands of hours of testing to see, you know, if it could do all the things that it was supposed to do in the different envelopes, uh, flight envelopes, and so you would have had to do that with two engines. That would have been that would have been really a nightmare. I think this is this was the right way to downselect at that time. But now we have an opportunity. There's a better engine. We should look at that. And actually, there's two other engines that are being developed: um, uh, the uh, General Electric uh, XA100 and the Pratt Whitney XA101 that are supposed to even have greater improvements. So maybe the ATP won't be selected. Maybe they won't make that in 2027. Maybe it'll it'll leapfrog to this, to these new engines. Um, and, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll work on that as like a long-term plan, but, uh, yeah, definitely need another engine. So I think, um, I think that'll happen. I just don't know when exactly they'll, they'll move there. Yeah. Well, I ultimately, I think I agree with you that you want to pay for competition on the front end and that can save you on the back end. But I don't think the F 35 program was structured right such that in 2010, like just injecting competition in this kind of static way would have actually really improved the outcomes. No, I don't think so either. And, and you, and you do have to look at, I mean, it's not crazy that, that, that a, what a fighter aircraft only has one engine. The F 16 only uses the GE engine. The B one uses the GE engine. F 15 does have a Pratt Whitney engine. So, you know, many of the other platforms only had one engine too. And, and you know, we did fine. It's just that, these but those were mature engines that they selected, right? They like that the yeah. F one ten for the F sixteen was just kind of picked up. It wasn't purpose built like this one. That's right. That's right. This one was a lot more complicated. Has a lot more requirements. So yeah, which was probably the right like the the root of all evil for the F thirty five program. That instead of going out and selecting subsystems that had high technical maturity, let's just in, reinvent everything super unique and tightly integrated. Right, um, and now you're super wrong. relying on on simulations, and the simulations have bugs, and who knows what's going on? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what could have gone wrong there. Well, apparently, <laughs> I hope to find out more about B twenty one, and apparently, you know, they took a very different approach in that regard, and 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 you know, only adopted things that were mature. So, you know, as we learn more about that over the years, it'll be interesting to see how they made those decisions and what trade-offs they had to make. Because you do have to do trade-offs with that, right? You're not going to get cutting edge um, if you adopt something that's already existing. That's that's true. But maybe you're getting to higher technical end states faster by taking yeah. this low approach, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, so you're not getting I, all this rework and, and then miserable kinds of like, you know, downgrades of performance relative to expectations. I think we also just need to design one of the things that the other five definitely didn't do, did, did not design to have different engines. So I think you have to plan that in your design uh, to allow some modularity there, um, you know, understand the interfaces that need to exist so that if you do build another engine, it's you, you are building it to some kind of common standard. And I don't think we have a common standard yet for engines, but there probably needs to be at least like partially uh, some commonality so that the integration time is not so expensive and prolonged because the F-35 is it, reintegrating a new engine. is going to be very painful. It'll be, it'll be rough. All right, let's move on to uh, Space Force. The fight is on at Space Systems Command, and this is from the Space Force itself. 
And it looks like uh, Space Systems Command has reorganized its program executive offices from that functional SMT, SMC 2.0 structure that was kind of in existence from 2019 to 2021, where they had Development Core, Enterprise Core, Production Core, Atlas, which was mostly kind of workforce stuff, and then Space Core. And now they have moved to a new structure where the PEOs are kind of based on capability portfolios like Battle Management, Command and Control, uh, assured access to space, communications, position, navigation, and timing, uh, space domain awareness, and space sensing. So these are the five at Space Systems Command. And of course, that does not include the Space Rapid Capabilities Office, which reports up to uh, a board of directors, and then the Space Development Agency, which itself you know, might get wrapped into Space Systems Command at some point, but is still external to that. What is the status of uh, SDA, do you know? I think it's going to report to the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, to the new Assistant Secretary um, for, for space. Space integration. Yeah, yeah. SAE for space or whatever. Yeah. So they will be a direct report. They'll, they'll still remain outside of Space Systems Command, even in, um, I guess, Kendall's future vision. As I understand it, but I, you know, it does seem like there's like still debates going on about exactly where things will fall. But. Well, what do you think about the, the PEO structure? I mean, I'm very much for it relative to the SMC 2.0 structure. Kind yeah. of aligns a little bit, like a little bit more aggregated of the old SMC directorates. Any thoughts on it? Yeah, no, I'm with you. I really like it. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense. I... I would have liked to have seen a little bit more direct alignment to the deltas, um, operational deltas. I thought there was just a there is a, there's some alignment. I, I feel like there's still there is still some misalignment though. But um, I do think that 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 will be a powerful coalition if you can if you can have your your you know your O sixes who are running the deltas uh, teamed up with your PEOs and and they know exactly the challenges they're having. You know, they're thinking about the future and looking at what's available and, and coming up with new concepts or new ways of, of potentially meeting the mission. Um, I think that's going to be really powerful. I'm a little bit concerned about the SWAC, just uh, the Space Warfighting, um, Warfighting Analysis Center, just because it seems like they're kind of maybe trying to take on a lot of the roles and sounds like they're almost trying to take on some acquisition roles. So I hope they stay more focused on the concepts like, what are the threats? Like, how should we employ different uh, capabilities? Coming up with some of the higher level requirements that the POs and the deltas can kind of work out. But, um, but yeah, no. So far, I think it's I think it's moving in the right direction. Um, I think they just have to be careful about like over centralizing everything. I think that's like a the the pick the program integration council uh, when General Gutline gave a talk recently at a conference. He mentioned that they were going to make all the decisions there, um, major acquisition decisions, which is, it's a group that basically includes the Intel community and MDA um, and the Air Force and Space Force. And so, you know, I think kind of centralizing everything and trying to do everything in these like little small groups, I don't think that is the right way to go. Cause I think you do need, like you, you do need to look, like have people that are really thinking outside the box need to bring, you know, the collective, acquisition community together to think about like how can we meet these different things in different creative ways using commercial systems and different things so yeah i i hope that's the one thing i fear is just like the centralization i hope the peos get to keep you know have like more autonomy than um, than they do now 
So is that integration office separate from this new Space Systems Command, Space Systems Integration Office led by Claire Leon here? <laughs> yeah, that's a different that's a different one. She's basically going to be like whatever architecture is decided by the SWAC, the um, Space Warfighting Analysis Center, they're going to come up with an architecture and she's basically going to be managing that architecture and the PEOs will be developing the capabilities to plug into it. Um, and then and what's so, SDA in, in that? It seems like they were supposed to be that portfolio architect and now they're like kind of just going off and building their own capabilities. Yeah, I honestly don't, besides the tracking layer and the... Um, Transport layer, I don't know what other role they're going to play. So I'm kind of curious to see that. The other piece is that SDA was very focused on commercial. Uh, and if you look at the new SSC construct, they do have uh, you know this commercial front door that they've stood up. They also have a commercial services office that's expanded beyond MilSatcom. So they, they already are kind of already intending to focus on bringing in more commercial entities. So does that start to negate the need for SDA or does the SDA just have these broader missions? I think, I, I feel like that's still probably like a little bit TBD or maybe somebody knows behind, you know, that's not telling anybody. So <laughs> not sure, not sure where that will, will lay out, but yeah, definitely it's going to be, if you think about it as a tier, it's going to be the pick. It sounds like it's going to be making a lot of the strategic level decisions about what capabilities are needed. That's going to flow down to the SWAC, who's going to integrate that into an architecture with new concepts, new things. And then that's going to flow down to the Space Systems Integration Office, who will, you know, basically, you know, each PO will have their mandate and they're going to have to plug in and provide those different capabilities that the SWAC says is needed and that the PIC agrees upon. So there's a lot of centralization and that's where that's where I start to fear that getting a decision, because we used to have this too with even on GPS. It's like, yeah, sometimes you had to go through so many of these freaking levels that it was really hard to kind of get all the information that you needed to those folks. And it, you know, things kind of get watered down as they go up. And so I, anyway, I hope they can work through that and allow the creativity at the bottom to percolate up. Yeah, it seemed like that was the original vision, but there's also a lot of unity of command talk, you know, know. interspersed yeah. in there for their drive for like this kind of culture that would be kind of a mission command culture, but then unity of command. You know, everyone wants their cake and eat it too, right? Yeah, and we were supposed to be, the Space Force was supposed to be the agile, lean, you know, uh, yeah, innovative force. And then, yeah, I think it's harder to do that when you have multiple levels to go through. All right, so let's shift back to the Navy. Spending bill would add five ships, 12 Super Hornets to Navy acquisition plans. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff going on, but the... The new uh, budget that just dropped here, um, the appropriations, in- increased $130 million for submarine supplier development, but then took away $15 million in advanced procurement for um, the Virginia class. And then it added $1.6 billion for a second DDG and $120 million for advanced procurement for DDGs. But then it also slowed down uh, the Navy's pursuit of the frigate, taking $69 million of advanced procurement funding. So, so it looks like a little, you know, selectivity in where where to go fast and where to go slow in terms of kind of shoring up the the supplier base because it looks like you know being able to surge these these things is problematic. So they need to kind of put it in early. 
yeah, I just didn't realize we had so many admirals and naval architects in the uh, Congress. It's uh, right. <laughs> it's, it's kind of impressive. <laughs> really, they really have the vision for what the what needs to go there. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of decisions being made for the for the Navy, given that they they put together that thirty year plan. You know, it doesn't sound like they're going to have much luck actually implementing what they said in there, because um, a lot of movements, including uh, you, you didn't mention one thing that I'm surprised you didn't. Uh, they also included funding for three LCSs, which the, the Navy had asked to, to decommission. So LCS uh, 3, 7, and 9, um, they gave them a bunch of depot maintenance money and modernization money. So, uh, and they, you know, on the aircraft side, they, they added a bunch of Super Hornets, even though the Navy asked to shut down the production line. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, more CH-53Ks, even though it's not necessarily the most proven four more MV-22 Ospreys, yeah. um, and $323 million for two more Tritons. I know. Well, actually, I Those are pretty nice. expensive, man. There's better be spares and repairs in there, but that's $150 million for for the Triton. I, I knew the Global Hawk was over 100 something million, but those are expensive platforms. Those are. That's the, uh, that's the, the uh, tanker one, isn't it? I think. Um, the, the Triton? Uh, oh, it's yeah. full of sensors. Oh, that's the ISR one. Okay, I'm yeah. There was the, um, the MQ-25, right? That was that's, the. That's the tanker. Yeah, that is kind of expensive for an ISR one. Um, I mean, you're getting it, for the same amount of money, you're getting four MV-22 Ospreys. It sounded like too, like the Navy, they didn't ask for it because they were they were developing an, uh, an upgrade. So I wonder if this procurement actually gets ahead of the upgrade, and that was that's going to create a disruption because if they had this upgrade program going on, that was going to take two years there, you know, they probably wouldn't want to actually award and procurement until they had that ready to go and they could get it on the production line. So I wonder how that mis- mismatch is, is going to happen there. I mean, generally I like to see UAVs being bought. I think we need more of them, but you know, if the Navy had a good reason why they didn't want them and they kind of got them shoved on them, it's a, uh, it sounds like not the best way of doing it. Well, General Electric or uh, General Atomics, they kind of saved the MQ uh, nine last year, remember? And and it looks yeah. like they they might have been able to get a little bit for the Triton too. They're they're avoiding shutdowns left and right on their production lines. Yeah, well, the Marines are the Marines are all all in on the MQ nine for uh, some of their ISR stuff. So they're um, they're they're pretty uh, they're they're kind of pretty they're pretty excited about it. They're doing a lot of work um, this year, so I think it'll be. I think that's actually good for the Marines at least, but yeah. Yeah. And a bunch, bunch of other uh, ships also being funded. Another amphibious transport dock, the LPD-32. Uh, we got two f- expeditionary fast transport ships for $590 million, $775 million for an oiler, $20 million uh, for additional oiler stuff, and then three ship-to-shore connectors, uh, which is kind of just gotten out of some trouble and they're kind of moving forward so um yeah a little uh, little plus up there for the navy probably not as much as some navy hawks or lovers would have wanted right yeah i mean maybe some of that stuff it's going to work out that it was a good idea uh actually i do like the ship to shore connectors i think that's pretty cool um and that seems to be really relevant in the pacific theater um but yeah it's it's still pretty sad that we couldn't cram any uh LUSVs or something in there. So, yeah. Well, 
maybe when you fund that, you don't really know who's winning. What, right? You don't know who, what what that might be the answer. Workers in ship shipyards are going to win that. It's a good point. Uh, so the next one, we got construction of Aegis ashore in Poland nearing completion. And so this has actually been started back in 2018, and it was planned to get running in 2022. Um, and it looks like they might be on track for that, but they've had a $96 million uh, cost overrun on the site. Uh, but yeah, so looks like they have a sh- Aegis ashore in Romania as well and a few other spots, but... It feels to me, you know, like Aegis Ashore is pretty big and, and it's just sitting there. It seems like that thing will be, is like the first thing to be taken out. Like, if, let's just say <laughs> Russia does decide to go to Poland. Like, what's the first target, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the India PACOM actually, uh, a commander, wanted uh, wanted some of these systems for, for Guam. And uh, I don't know if there was, yeah, I think it was just Guam. But yeah, it, you're you're absolutely right. It does seem like it's a definitely a center of gravity. Like if you could mobilize it somehow, I don't know exactly how, but even if it was on a rail <laughs> railroad, I don't know. But yeah, the one in Romania was a, is enormous. I I kind of thought it would be like one one structure, you know, like a uh, yeah, like a little bit like a small building, you know, with the with the radar dish, but. Man, it's, it's, a, it's a whole building. complex. It's a yeah. massive burden. Yeah, it's a huge complex. Well, the amount of power, I guess, it takes and all, all of, like, the unique equipment. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, those things, like, just, like, the power consumption on the DDGs, like, for the Flight 3s, like, all of the stuff they had to do to make sure that they could power that thing. It's kind mm. of crazy. Interesting. All right. Uh, last one we'll do here. Chinese and Saudi firms create joint venture to make military drones in the kingdom. And so this new joint venture is Aerial Solutions. And it's, uh, again, Chinese and Saudis building UAVs of different types. So it's going to be a nice research and development center. Um, They'll include communications, flight control, camera, radar, wireless detection, and all sorts of other things for kind of eVTOL drones and anti-drone solutions, analytics, radar systems, all sorts of things. And so, yeah, it looks like, Saudi Arabia wants to grow their local industry and China is willing to help them. So Saudi seems to be getting a lot of American tech and Chinese tech kind of blended, you know, together there. I don't know if that's going to cause some concerns, but, um, yeah. Well, if it starts, yeah, if it starts to venture into anything that's, that's sensitive, that will, yeah. I mean, the Saudis will, will not get some of our systems if they start getting that, that close with uh, some of the Chinese firms. So I think right now they're buying mostly commercial type technology and different things. And so they're probably probably being careful about that somewhat because they do like American weapon systems. Uh, but yeah, that'll have to be something. I, I think in general, though, we should probably note that this is not a good trend. Um, you know, I think we're seeing Saudi Arabia and UAE uh, become a lot more closer with, uh, with Russia and China um, they've sort of veered further away from the U.S. So, you know, I do think them building this uh, type of technology up is, you know, uh, we'll see down the line where this when this comes back to bite us. But, uh, you know, it could be could be something uh, could be something to, to kind of watch and, and see, um, you know, uh, it, it is kind of interesting, though, that that actually Saudi Arabia, you know, actually was maybe this focus on drones a little bit, given that 
they actually had some of like their oil facilities kind of hit by drones. And, and maybe that sort of woke them up to the fact, oh, this is actually a, a, some, a capability that we want to have. Um, so kind of kind of funny that they seem to have got the message after they, they actually took an attack from a drone that they didn't see coming. Well, they should but, be uh, contracting with Enduro, right? <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, you're right. Yeah. But the biggest, uh, in 2017, Saudi made the biggest Chinese arms sale um, where they bought a bunch of Wing Lung 2 drones, which kind of look like uh, an MQ-9. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of weird that they're, you know, kind of in bed with both. But, you know, we saw them pretty advanced systems, right? Like Thad and, and the Patriots and all that kind of stuff. The Saudis have them. They don't have F-35s, but uh, still, it's kind of concerning. It is, yeah. All right, well, that's all we have time for today. Matt, thanks for joining me, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.